Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Alan Tollest, and this week we've got a very special episode for this festive period where we take a look at the maddest political moments from Westminster in 2023 with our review of the year in politics. Joining me to discuss everything from the mystery of the SNP camper van, Rishi Sunak losing his marbles, to Keir Starmer getting glittered, and of course, all things Nadine Doris, I have two of Paul Holmes' finest, my colleagues Caitlin Doherty and Zoe Crowther, and returning to cast his eye over the year's strangest SW1 goings-on, I'm delighted to say we have the Spectator's political correspondent, James Heal. So I'm going to start, the, the first one I think that comes to mind when I talk about kind of the weird moments of this year was the return of David, now Lord Cameron of Chipping Norton. I think on that kind of Monday morning, we were all expecting back in November a reshuffle. I think most people were expecting, not expecting David Cameron to walk, to step out of a car on Downing Street. So just talk us through that morning and kind of how it happened and, and how surprised I think everyone was to see a famous face back in back in number 10. Yeah, so um, Westminster was very much braced for a major reshuffle because we knew that Suella Braverman was likely going to be sacked and that therefore there was going to be movements around that. However, I think it's fair to say no one saw the return of David Cameron. Um, and usually these things are slightly trailed or yeah. maybe there's rumours going around Westminster for months beforehand, but this was not the case with this. And there was actually a very funny clip of um, the BBC's Henry Zeffman um, just spotting <laughs> now Lord Cameron walking along Downing Street and then having to report straight to the camera. So I think I've yeah, just I seen David Cameron enter number 10. And I think, I think that means he's going to be foreign secretary. Yeah, it was pretty bizarre, wasn't it? And James, obviously, as, as, as Zoe points out, stuff is often trailed. We know actually that David Cameron had been next to Rishi Sunak at the Cenotaph the day before for Remembrance Sunday. You know, you look back, there wasn't sort of a, a little wink to Sunak, although apparently the rumour is that he he might have slightly given it away that he sort of said, see you tomorrow at an event after uh, afterwards. But apart from that, they'd kept it very close to the chest. How, how on earth did number 10 manage to keep this one under wraps? So as we understand it, Sunak and Cameron were talking a lot throughout the Israel-Gaza conflict. Uh, this is what the Prime Minister told my colleague Katie Balls in his Christmas interview with her. And so I think really from that, over the, the kind of two or three weeks beforehand, there was developed this rapport and a sense perhaps that Cameron had a degree of expertise that was lacking among the kind of government at the time. And so bringing him back was seen as a way of kind of bolstering the credibility of the government and the credentials within it. I'd only also say that, uh, as Zoe talks about Henry Zeffman's reaction, let's also not forget um, Kay Burley's reaction. Action, <laughs> yeah. which was to suggest when he got out of the car that the Prime Minister had put on a bit of weight since, uh, <laughs> or the ex sorry, the ex Prime Minister had put on a bit of weight since he left Number Ten seven years ago. And I think really what's interesting is how divided the Conservative Party was in reaction to that yeah, appointment. Yeah. I had a lot of Red Wall MPs texting me saying, "How on a set? This was the guy who was the man who led the Remain campaign in 2016." Yeah. But the Blue Wall Tories were delighted and saying, "You know, this is exactly someone my voters want to see." The constituents, at last, the Tory Party is coming back to what I wanted in 2010, 2015. So quite a divisive one. And it's what's interesting is hearing from the kind of discussions around the Rwanda bill, which we'll come on to, how the David Cameron appointment really divided opinion among MPs. And some of them felt a little bit put out that their yeah. kind of wing of the party was overlooked, snubbed for someone who wasn't even in Parliament as of, what, two months ago. Yeah, exactly. And you've got 350 MPs to choose from and you've gone, well, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't like any of these. Yeah, it was kind of bizarre. And, and I, I did hear one MP say, Daddy's back, which I think was uh, God. disgusting. Uh, but, you know, it kind of leads into it. But, but, but Caitlin, it did feel a bit like, number 10 were very pleased with themselves after they've done it for keeping this under wrap and stuff but it did feel a bit like they were maybe being a bit too clever for their own good and, and as, as James points out that it's led to some criticism further down the line that you know if Sunak wants to put the party back together you know anything you can do that brings sort of the one nation is on side like bringing David Cameron back 
only seeks to anger those people that we are going to have to call the five families, but under duress. It's the only time I'll mention it now. But it's going to cause anger to those guys. So whilst obviously there is so much perspective on this since, I have to say that on the day I had quite an unusual perspective on this in as much as I was off and I didn't have the television on. I just had my Twitter feed up and the radio on. And I'll be honest, I thought it was a joke. (laughs) I I thought it was people, you know, mucking about. I thought it was one of the satirists. I thought, and I dismissed it. And it was only 15, 20 minutes later when I came back to it, I went, oh, you're right. It was just one of those things that was so unbelievable. But your point there about, you know, the one nation is and the divides that it's caused and trying to, you know, resolve the Rwanda plan and this big battle in the Conservative Party that just seems to be pulled one way or, or the other at the moment. I think that's probably going to be a running theme through yeah, this podcast yeah. in as much as Rishi Sunak has two wings of his party to keep happy. Mm. And there is an increasingly small amount of common ground, yeah. it seems. Johnson managed to hold it together for that brief moment yeah. in 2019 and ever since it's been pulling in different directions. Well, it's journalists like to compare everything to Brexit because it was so fundamental in the way that it reshaped our politics. PTSD for those two years. Yeah, yeah, and it reshaped the way we think about political parties. But I would say the Cameron appointment inevitably feeds into the Rwanda story and inevitably feeds into that idea of you know new conservatives versus the older blue wallers i mean new conservatives with a small n not the uppercase n for the for the group uh, not to confuse things but i think that will be the biggest story going into next year as in how you try to resolve those two things and i think the appointment of david cameron probably kept one side of that divide happier than it did the other yeah james we had this year's kind of famous uh, hot mic moment was was gillian keegan um <laughs> Saying as she was being interviewed by ITV during the, the the rack scandal, one of the things that was huge at the time and has sort of been pushed down the political order. But the thing that everyone remembers from it is, is Gillian Keegan, the education secretary, saying that she was doing an effing good job. It, it really kind of captured the, the zeitgeist. And it was, I think, as, as hot mic moments go, it's one of the best, I think, of the, of the past few years. Certainly. And we played it at our Spectator Awards and uh, it evoked one of the biggest laughs, along with the Rachel Reeves, for God's sake, when uh, Keir Speech <laughs> when got, got blitz bomb. Yeah. So those two, I think, were two uh, viral moments of the year. Uh, it's very funny, of course, first and foremost, and you know, ranks up there with such hot mic moments as the one where John Major talked about some of his colleagues and yep. questioning their, their parentage. And uh, King Charles, back when he was Prince of Wales, saying about uh, the BBC's royal correspondent, I can't bear that, man. I <laughs> yeah. simply can't. So it was really funny. I also think that it's well worth mentioning because I think it reflects two issues which have really played Richard United's government. One of which is the lack of capital investment over the past decade or so, which is now coming back to haunt them in 2023. Mm. In some ways, you could argue that next year's general election will actually be a sort of belated referendum verdict on the 2010 to 15 coalition government. I think second of all, there's also their frustration at the lack of any political credits, even though when they do sort of fight fires and do them well, I think really talking to people from all different departments, there's not that much they can change on the ground which can be felt and things that they can change they don't get any credit for. And uh, rightly or wrongly, that's politics. And so I do think it's an interesting question about, as Boris Johnson said last year, we discussed on last podcast, when the herd moves, it moves. And so as Jim Callan also said, there could be a sea change and I think when I see change, as it looks for Labour right now, there's very little you can do to buck the storms. Yeah, when the tide's coming out, I suppose, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and, and so we had a, a similar moment with uh, a, a sort of split moment from a senior Conservative. We had James Cleverly at, uh, at P1 
PMQs was it a couple of weeks ago mm, or during yeah. the, during the debate where he was said to have made a derogatory comment about an MP's constituency and he then went on to claim that actually he was talking about the MP himself which is a, a good a good defense essentially as much as you can do but yeah just to talk us through that one on, on Cleverly's kind of uh, again his kind of hot mic moment there yeah so he called while maintaining our clean rating on Apple Podcasts <laughs> for, for swearing well supposedly allegedly called the constituency an s hole yep and as you said later went on to defend it by saying that he was actually referring to the MP I don't know whether that's better or Alex not. Cunningham obviously the Labour yeah, MP for, Alex for Stockton Cunningham, yeah. um, Alex Cunningham did come back and say he did not accept James Cleverley's apology because he believed that it wasn't levelled to him as an individual it was levelled to his constituency and that therefore his constituency deserved an apology and I don't know I think this is one of those moments where James Cleverley is known to occasionally kind of use language where maybe he shouldn't as such a kind of senior <laughs> um, senior Secretary of State. Yeah. Um, there was another example where Shadow Home Secretary Yvette Cooper said that Cleverley had previously used another expletive term to refer to the Rwanda plan. Yes. So he does have form for this. He does. And I suppose when the public are looking at situations like this, it's very funny. We can all laugh about it. But then you've obviously got Labour, Keir Starmer coming back and saying, look, this is all a shambles. This shows how shambolic the government is. So it's not necessarily a great look for the government when they're standing up at a professional parliament event at PMQs and kind of throwing insults left, right and centre. And maybe, maybe this is going to be indicative of how the general election campaign is going to be formed. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? The, well. the way that we listen, whether we would listen back to the footage and like listen to the, is picked up on the other mics, mm. like it's sort of like the Zapruder footage, trying to work out what he actually kind of said. But I think what was what's important and there, as you, as you pointed out, there's a Stockton South. It's going to be a totemic seat because it's, it's, a, it's a red wall seat and it's going to be a key part of the campaign. So if, if there was any place that Cleverly could have potentially described in that way, Stockton South was a very bad place to, to describe. Well, this is one of those issues that, if I remember correctly, sort of had its moment died down and then got reignited. And interestingly, the thing that reignited that was an intervention from Ben Houchin, who is very much one of mm. the superstars of the Conservative Party. The in, elected his own, mayor, in, his own, in his own mind. Yeah, the elected mayor <laughs> in the Northeast, you know, he's been given a peerage. He's He's been successful. He was elected mayor before the Conservatives took a load of those red wall seats in 2019. So the timeline was sort of running through. And then it was interesting to see that intervention from Ben Houchin as a Conservative mayor, because I think another thing that it speaks to with the general election is, you know, what are members of each party going to be saying about one another and mm. everybody else's actions? And it was then resolved, you know, further down the line, and we, but it had sort of died a death, the story, and then it sort of bubbled up for a day two or day three that maybe we weren't necessarily expecting. Yeah, and James, can we expect to see that on a few of the kind of the campaign leaflets next year, you know, of, of how cleverly up in the northeast of, of what, uh, you know, the now Home Secretary described that area? Completely, because it fits into Labour's narrative that for all their talk in 2019 of the Tories finally achieving levelling up and delivering for a long overlooked part, it simply hasn't been an issue to them. And they will be keen to exploit this narrative that the Tories are out of touch, obsessed in Westminster with their own devised and psychodrama, rather focusing on delivering for the North. So I'm sure we can expect that to be played again and again at every opportunity. <laughs> yeah. Ad nauseam. Yeah, indeed. And <laughs> moving slightly north of, of uh, Stockton up into uh, to Scotland, the kind of the mm. roiling drama that has been... The SNP's kind of implosion, really, and we'll start with kind of Nicola Sturgeon's surprise resignation. I think everyone kind of knew she was going to mm. go, but the moment of it was was a bit dramatic, and, and I suppose we, we worked out why a few weeks later when she was when she was arrested, and, and that kind of talk us through the day we found out, and, and, and the kind of the 
the, the drama that took place outside of her and Peter Morrill, the former SNP chief exec, her husband's house. Well, in typical um, spectator fashion, she, her resignation was designed to maximum unhelpfulness for us because <laughs> it was on mag day. So we had two yeah. and a half hours to rewrite the whole cover and the story and yeah. talking about all of that on the Wednesday morning, I remember. But look, when she went, I mean, the initial reaction was... She gets to go at a time of her own choosing. Yep. She leaves office having achieved so much. She's made the SNP the National Party of Scotland hegemonic force, etc. Won all these elections, positioned them well. Yeah, against the backdrop of, of a voting system that's meant to prevent one party from winning. It, it, completely. Recently. I think everyone would agree the most formidable politician of her generation. Mm. And even at that time, there was a sense of, okay, well, the guy's coming next. Will they live up to that shadow? But I think rapidly what happened in the, com- the weeks after that with her being taken in for questioning, discussing the ongoing police investigation into party finances. Um, it's really cast a long shadow over her legacy. I think it's worth saying, of course, that in her party view, she is still regarded as a heroine. We saw that at the October party yeah. conference where she was treated like sort of Mr. Big in um, the Italian job. You know, people were cheering and chanting and delighted to see her. But among the kind of Scottish commentariat, the whole country as a whole, it is a very different sense. And I think now that Humza Yusuf, her successor, first of all, will struggle because he's not Nicholas Sturgeon. And anyone will struggle to live up to that. But second of all, dealing with the kind of problems because of the, as we now know, the party machine was a lot less well-oiled than we thought at the time. Yeah, exactly. And, and the stuff on that day, the, the, the bizarre image of the sort of line of duty style police <laughs> forensics tent outside a house and officers from Police Scotland going in with spades into the house. It was a very surreal moment for someone, as, as James points out, had been so successful and kind of such a, an emblem of the SNP's dominance to suddenly be brought down like that was, was kind of remarkable to watch. It was. And I was actually in a spoons, a weather spoons at the time. Yep. And it was one of those rare moments in political TV where it actually had people looking up from their pints. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, with the big kind of splash, Nicholas Sturgeon possibly arrested, you know. One of the huge questions now is obviously what does this mean for the question of Scottish independence? Mm. Because really when you've got such a, a strong leadership figure in someone like Sturgeon, when that kind of gets taken away, you know, the wind's really been taken out of their sails. And obviously that poses, again, huge questions for the election for Scotland. Yeah, yeah. Will Labour be able to come in and kind of sweep away those seats or is it really not going to be that simple? Mm. So going into 2024 the SNP have a huge, huge challenge on yeah, their hands. Yeah, and, and that party that had been, I remember Labour MPs referred to them as sort of robots because the, the SNP MPs in Parliament are so kind of rigid, so stick behind the leadership. And then suddenly we're seeing that breaking off. We're seeing senior members say they're not going to stand again or being critical of the leadership. And that dominant party is starting to sort of break apart. And we saw them lose the by-election, Margaret Ferry's old seat in Rutherford. And it's really kind of put the wind in Scottish Labour sails having been so damaged for a few years. Certainly. It will be interesting to see how Labour approach Scotland in the next election, whether they really kind of go in on the question of independence or whether they really just... Because just like they do with the Conservatives in England and their record of 13 years, they can do the same thing now with the SNP. Be when, the change candidate. Exactly, the like well. the NHS is really also crumbling mm. up there and many of their public services are really kind of under threat of, of collapse, just like they are in the rest of the UK. So really seeing what Labour do with that election campaign going into next year is, is definitely going to be an interesting one. Just lastly, before we move on from that, I think the luckiest politician 
of the year is Kate Forbes, I would say, who narrowly lost to Humza Yusuf to become the next leader of the SNP, but now has dodged a bullet there, given the kind of the poison chalice that Humza Yusuf has taken over. And we were discussing before we recorded this, like how badly it seems to have aged him over this time. You know, he took over as kind of the company man. He was backed by Sturgeon and by the other bigwigs of the party. And now he's probably going to ask them, I wish you hadn't really, because it's not, it's not really been a great time to, to take over. I've had a number of pollsters who have said to me that, you know, obviously with the obvious caveat of general elections don't behave like by-elections. And I know we've had a lot of by-elections this year, but they are very much not the norm in how they behave in, you know, electoral science. But it does feel like Scotland could hold the key and Mm. it is going to be a big battleground. You know, do Labour have a path to a majority without Scotland? Yeah. Or is it, you know, different areas of England? Because different areas of England in particular have become so divided over, you know, the last few years. You used to be able to guarantee that the South East was going to vote blue and the Midlands and the North West were going to vote red. And those expectations have been completely blown up and blown out of the water over the last few years. So I think this will probably be one of those political stories that come three, four, five years down the line. People are writing really long, detailed theses and and books on as to, you know, what was the moment that that signalled the change and, you know, could this have been it? Yeah. Right, move on to the next one then. A quick quiz for you, Caitlin. The five families that I mentioned earlier. Can you... Oh, she's got... Oh, you've got written down already. Okay, fine. Well, I'll ask, maybe I'll ask, I'll ask James then. What, what are the, what, who are the five families of the Conservative Party? The European Research Group. Yeah. Fronted by Marc uh, Frido Francois. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you have the Northern Research Group. Yes. By Sir Jake Berry. Yeah. You have the Common Sense Group. Yes. Led by Sir John Hayes. Yeah. You have the Conservative Growth Group, twin-led by the forces that are Renel Giawardena and Simon Clark. And the final and fifth one would have to be the New Conservative by Danny Kruger and Miriam Cates. There you go. Okay, so, so Caitlin, what exactly are the five families and what, what, is, what are we talking about here? The five families are a very new introduction into the political yes, lexicon. Yes, and a very unwelcome one at that. Uh, we're recording this the week before Christmas, and I have to say it was probably less than a fortnight ago we first heard this term. But the five families, as they have now become known, uh, were all of the groups that were invited to discussions ahead of the vote on the second reading of the Rwanda bill last week, the bill that will um, allow the government, if passed, to send asylum seekers to Rwanda. You know, we spoke a few minutes ago about, you know, the various divisions in the Conservative Party and all the various different groups that Rishi Sunak needed to keep happy. And, you know, there was some suggestions bubbling under that, you know, members of these groups could vote against the policy. And, you know, was Rishi Sunak going to lose his majority at a second reading, which would have been of huge yeah. political well, significance. the first time that government lost since the, eight, since the 86, 80s. right? Yeah. In the end, that didn't happen. What a surprise. No Conservative MP voted against the legislation, yeah. um, but we did have a fairly significant number who abstained. And I really think this is, you know, I'm not one to like to make predictions um, because they always end up wrong and I hate being wrong. But I think this policy issue and the arguments that inevitably stem from it will probably be one of, if not the defining issue ahead of the general election you know, we've got basically two ground wars here in the Conservative Party. You've got the One Nationers, more centrist group who, you know, are fighting probably to get back to the state of the Conservative Party as they saw it five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years ago, you know, more of the centre ground. Mm. And then you've got MPs on the right of the Conservative Party who it would be easy to argue have probably been the more dominant ideological position over the last few years. Rishi Sunak can't keep both groups happy, quite frankly. I mean, looking at it on this um, on this particular issue, 
the groups that are more towards the centre essentially want Britain to be maintaining their commitment to uh, various human rights legislations and international obligations, whereas those on the right want to cut out or significantly, significantly reduce the rights to an individual legal challenge to somebody being sent to Rwanda. And I suspect that as we go along, we'll find that those two ideas aren't mm. quite compatible. I thought it was quite interesting that both the One Nation group and the, the groups on the right both want the same thing, which is to amend this legislation. But the One Nation group just said, yeah, fine, we'll go through, we'll let it go through and then we'll, and then we'll do it next year. At the, the proper moment, which is at report stage or committee stage, the right wing of the Conservative Party decided, no, 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 we're going to call endless press conferences, we're going to have meetings, breakfast in number 10, and eventually we're going to brief that it's going to be 40, 50 MPs rebelling and the bill's going to be, could be brought down and in the end we had 29 abstentions and I feel like Mark Francois marched us up to the top of the hill and then had to march the troops back down again and, and what does that kind of bode I think for, for next year as we go, as this bill goes forward essentially? Well it does seem like it bodes for continuous psychodrama <laughs> as many have called it and I know that from speaking to a number of MPs across the party, not, not just on the centre but kind of across the spectrum there is a great deal of frustration, I think, among a lot the majority of Conservative MPs, to be honest, that there is quite a vocal minority of individuals who do obviously get this attention, yeah. do kind of make this kind of ruckus, when most MPs actually just really want the legislation to pass through, they want public support for the government's position on Rwanda. So a number of MPs that I've spoken to have been really quite frustrated and angry with some of the individuals who've been so vocal in their opposition to the government, even if they themselves don't necessarily agree with the legislation in full. I think just how public it has been, the fact that there are often spats on, on Twitter now known as X, like everything just being so public, I think is mm. obviously going to be concerning for MPs who are holding on to very marginal uh, minority <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> um, Perhaps minds might, minds might be focused yeah. more towards election when mm. we get closer to that. James, as the, the most stylish man on, on, the, uh, on, the, on the podcast, I want to talk to you about one of the people who was key to this figures was, was Robert Jenrick, the immigration minister mm. who, who resigned and is now the subject of lots of stories about his uh, sort of his rebrand, about his style overhaul. I wondered what you, what you, what you made of kind of this and, and his, his kind of rise from essentially being sort of like Sunak's man inside the home office, mm. suddenly being the new standard bearer on the right of the party. Well, I know we've been talking about bringing back David Cameron, but it was returned to George Osborne playbook. You yes. Know, with the Caesar haircut, yep. the losing weight. Yeah. And I was like, oh God, you know, feel young again. But um, <laughs> So, I mean, what's interesting here, I suppose, is just what the Home Office does to a politician, I think. And sometimes we can talk about agendas, and I think certainly there was you know, clearly ambition at play here. But equally, I think since entering the Home Office in October 2022, I think Robert Jenrick has been on a journey and I think that increasingly, if you look at what politicians who go into the Home Office are like and they come out as, they get quite hardened by the experience and you tend to end up embracing measures. And there's often this kind of interesting contrast whereby every other department, apart from the Home Office, wants to increase immigration. You know, if you want to have higher education, you want more visas, you want DEFRA, you want more fruit pickers. But the Home Office, your job is to keep it down. And so I think that he increasingly became quite, you know, convinced of the merits of the scheme. Mm. And so therefore, he chose to fall out. I think that was what was interesting so what was so telling for me was that the way in which it wasn't politicians were looking at Siola Braverman for their lead two weeks ago when the, the whole bill was coming yeah. through it was Martha looking for Robert Jenrick's lead on this and I think that's because 
you know, I think in politics you have a fifteen percent politician versus a fifty percent politician. And there's party, there's politicians who just want to have like a small wing of the party or real hardcore, the kind of Farage type ones, yeah. and the ones who would hope to kind of lead a bigger movement. And I think generally, by more of the centre right of the party, was kind of put a lot of stock in him. I'd say. Yeah, interesting. That will increasingly become one of the big stories of next year, though. I mean, we're we're all here talking about you know general election has to be held by the end of 20, January twenty twenty five, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But as the actual date becomes an inevitability people will start looking towards the future of the Conservative Party after that general election, which at this point we assume will be significantly slimmed down in the House of Commons mm. compared to what it is now. You know, We already know a number of big names are stepping down. Will there be other big names that lose their seat? Not only who is going to be the Prime Minister, but who is going to be the leader of the opposition come six, eight, nine months' time after we've had that general election. And I think like I said, as that starts to become more of an inevitability, those movements might start to become a little bit more blatant yeah. and in the public eye. We'll come on to that a bit, a little bit later. But we've talked a lot about the Tories. We're going to switch up now and actually talk about Labour politician. Rachel Reeves, the Shadow Chancellor, had uh, kind of a big moment as releasing her book about the sort of women's shape. <laughs> the economy. And, um, and it turns out that there was a bit of a, a bit of an issue with some of the, I say the footnotes. I mean, like, Zoe, talk us through what the what the kind of issue was there with the, with Rachel Reeves' book. Yeah, so big release of her book, um, the Women Who Made Economics, back in October, and it turned out it wasn't just kind of the notes; it, it was whole kind of sections and paragraphs of the books. Financial Times found had been lifted from Wikipedia, The Guardian, and a report forward by Labour MP Hillary Benn. Um, I mean, who amongst <laughs> us, you know, as journalists, is not, you know, it's not used to love Wikipedia yeah, over the years. You know, we all do it. You just got to make sure that <laughs> yeah, <laughs> change the sentences change the around. Sentences enough, yeah. And if if you're doing it in a book, my God, you need to be careful about um, making sure that you're referencing properly. And yeah. obviously, the publisher came back and said it was inadvertent mistakes. Rachel Reeves afterward apologised, said she took it very seriously and should yeah, have done yeah. better. I mean, personally, I just really feel for one of her assistants or researchers <laughs> who uh, possibly ex may have assistants had some. or ex-researchers, I think they might yeah, be now. certainly. Um, and obviously it was one of those things, again, is just going to be absolute fodder for like campaign oh, absolutely. material. Yeah, I've um, seen the Tories using that a absolutely. lot already. Like, I think within minutes, um, yeah. former chairman um, of the Conservative Party, Greg Hans, was posting on X, you know, stuff about Labour having no new plans, endlessly replicating old stuff from the past. And they're almost certainly going to use it as a nod to Keir Starmer's Labour, potentially recycling ideas from New Labour and yeah. Tony Blair's yeah, Labour yeah, yeah. government. Such an easy line for them. Yeah, it was very much that, that 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 meme. You know, this is the one thing we didn't want to happen. I think when you bring a book out and it turns out that it's you know, for, and also for James, for Rachel Reeves, she's a very serious politician. It's yeah. exactly the sort of thing that she didn't need because that's not the sort of her whole vibe. Really, is is the, the complete opposite of that. Someone who takes things like this very seriously and is very diligent, and that's a, the kind of message she wants to get across. Labour's it's very hard for them to win on the economy. You have to show that kind of discipline and and the kind of attention to detail. And you know that wasn't quite there in this well, instance. Well, well, she was once called boring snoring and I think that was very much her pitch in the sense of he wasn't going to be a necessarily brilliant unorthodox kind of Boris Johnson-esque figure she was meant to be solid stable mm. um, good with the books uh, turns out she was copying and pasting them um, which was the problem and look I mean it, it's it makes some easy lines god knows Labour would use enough of them across the dispatch box so yeah. and I think there's a more perhaps interesting criticism here which is that I, I saw this last week in Parliament Sir Robert Sims made the point to one of Labour's Treasury ministers um, said that, you know, you've said that we've crashed the economy and have no plan for the future, then why are you voting with every single one of our measures? And the point is, if you just copy and paste, I think the key thing will be next year, both parties are really trying to make themselves the standard bearers of fiscal credibility. 
but I mean, how do you differentiate yourself? Maybe you don't need to. Maybe Labour will just be, we're not mm. them, and they'll vote for this, the guys yeah. with the red rosette rather than blue rosette. But it's an interesting kind of point about, you know, copy-pasting Tory policy. Yeah, and, and that whole 28 billion that they talked about that they're sort of reversing a, a way out of, Caitlin, whether actually that's going to be a big kind of dividing line, whether the Conservatives, if they seek to try and stay in power, that they try and those kind of wedge issues, that dividing line about how money, how public spending is going to take place. I think fiscal responsibility probably is going to be the big policy issue of the next general election. You know, we've spoken about the various issues the parties may have on an individual basis but the thing that the public are probably going to be looking for is the economy you know mortgage rates are sky high the cost of living is still very very expensive compared to what it was at the last general election but more about that shift that we were talking about about you know it looks like the conservatives could lose power and it looks like labor could gain power are labor having to adopt uh, more of an approach of what they would be in government. You know, we've seen them talking about not wanting to make unfunded spending promises. And that's what part of the uh, 28 billion net zero promise was. You know, we've taken another look at the at the numbers and we don't want to make promises that we can't keep. And then similarly, the same on the Conservative side. You know, this was a slip up by Rachel Reeves and they've been able to jump on it instantly. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you've got the accusations of a copy and paste chancellor and, you know, all of this fodder for social media and things like that. So it's more of just that shifting dynamic i think in the house of commons and between the political parties that is partly to do with you know the time that's passed since the last general election you know they've both had different leaders both parties have been through a number of fairly significant political moments since then but also are we just moving into that different stage of politics again well, moving from the kind of serious to the less serious, James, um, Penny Mordaunt became the sort of the star of the show, at, certainly the political star of the show at the coronation, essentially for holding a sword for a, for a large period of time. And, and in some commentators' minds, that seemed to sort of thrust her to the forefront of British politics in the sense that she should be the next leader of the party ostensibly because she, she could hold a sword and look quite nice in her, in her lovely yeah. blue dress. I, I mean, I think there's certain commentators of, of a certain age who <laughs> uh, rather like the look of Penny Mordaunt brandishing the sword like boot in yes. uh, Westminster Abbey. And of course, were there not the trust collapse six months previously, it could have been Jacob Rees-Mogg standing there holding yeah. that sword up. Yeah, um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if she imagined when she was made leader of the, the Commons, which is, you know, a bit of a demotion from where she's been previously, that actually it would then put her right to the forefront of, the, of this, of this uh, coronation because that's the role that, that it takes exactly. place. Right? It must have been in the small print somewhere, but it depends whether you read down that far. I uh, yeah, I don't, yeah, I'm not sure she was expecting <laughs> it. Yeah. Um, and she did, she formed it very well. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure necessarily it's a sort of modern pre requisite for a minister to be good brandishing a sword but to go remember a turn to Arthurian legend um, <laughs> yeah but yeah she did very well at that and I think what's telling is going around the Christmas party season circuit she's done a lot of uh, speaking engagements yes yes think tanks etc and getting on the diary columns so I'm sure she'll be maybe some of her backers will be thinking third time's the charm in terms of a leadership role <laughs> tilt again yeah but her stock kind of rose then but I think it kind of took a bit of a nosedive at conference with her infamous stand up and fight speech of which there are many sort of super cuts going around on, on social media kind of missed the mark somewhat as we know sometimes these speeches can do at, at party conferences yeah and it's, it's one of those that obviously when it gets shared more widely as you say met with absolute bewilderment like fight mm. for for what fight, yeah, 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 fight exactly. against who it, it, it was somewhat <laughs> unclear However, I must say it did go down rather well with the members. Oh, yeah, well, sure. I bet, I bet the pork market speech did when, when the members back yeah. in the day. Yeah. And I was actually at a different event next door at Conservative Party conference with the Tory reform group, where it was, it was quite muted. They were talking about their plans to kind of really 
up the uh, the moderate wing of the party going forwards, etc. But you couldn't hear the speeches properly in that room because Penny Mordaunt was next door and the shouts, the screams were so loud <laughs> that you could barely hear over them. Um, so yeah, just in terms of atmosphere, she certainly managed to get everyone quite riled up. Um, well, then, moving on then, speaking of conference, Tory party conference, apart from Stand Up and Fight, was, was very much overshadowed by HS2 and the, the drama over that and the kind of the, the slow moving disaster that it, that it was. Essentially, I, I think I counted about three, four times over the space of that you know week when the Tories lost control of the narrative of their own policy, essentially. And eventually we led to the situation where the Prime Minister in very attractive old railway station in Manchester was confirming the axing of a, an expensive train line to Manchester. How do we kind of get to that point and how did it become the defining feature of Rishinak's first conference? I think the issue was the fact that this had been floating around as a news story for maybe around two weeks yes. ahead of party conferences. It was the Independent that first broke the story, Yeah, I and believe. I think Harry Cole had first done a bit about going to Old Oak Common so, and not going to Euston and that sort of stuff. Yeah, so as well as the idea of it being scrapped north of Birmingham, we also had a lot of toing and froing as to whether it would come into Euston in central London and you were suddenly faced with the prospect of a train line that had been promised from central London to Leeds and Manchester running from Birmingham to somewhere between central London and Heathrow. That no one's ever heard of. Yeah, I think ultimately what happened here was Rishi Sunak, he clearly wanted to keep this change under his hat. Yep. You know, whether it was for the big reveal at the end of Conservative Party conference or whether it was for more consultation to eventually be revealed later. But the problem was that the hat had blown off his head and the policy was floating around in the wind and, you know, everybody could see it for what it was. Mm. And then, bald head underneath it, yeah. And then we ended up with this really strange period of 24 hours at Conservative Party conference where you had both the Mayor of the West Midlands, the Conservative Andy Street, and then the Mayor of Greater Manchester, uh, Labour's Andy Burnham, both sort of trying to share their views about the policy. We had a couple of emergency press conferences on either side of the conference hotel with pictures of photographers kneeling down on the floor trying to get the best shot from underneath Andy Street that they could. And you're right, it did just completely blast the narrative of Rishi Sunak's first Conservative conference out the water. And I think it's because it was so many different policies and ideals that sort of all imploded at the same time. Yeah, It's really easy to turn around and say HS2 was a policy for the North and Midlands and you know that was where the Conservatives won a whole swathe of seats in 2019 and before dating back to 2017, 2015 but you also then had a, the idea there of you know fiscal promises and you know what money had been spent and were things getting out of control and you know were the Treasury putting greater fiscal restraints on other departments Yeah. and then also the idea of this being a big secret and it's sort of leaking out and you know where's it coming from, Who who's mm. it coming from, who's briefing who and this all just sort of merged into this big implosion of a policy that meant no other question was asked about anything else at Conservative Party conference. No, and it was the lasting image that everybody was left with. And then subsequently, when the media and political circus moved on to Labour conference a week later, which is unusual, normally Labour Party conferences first. And when there was none of that, you again then had the yin and the yang. Yeah. In the two. pantheon of conference disasters, James, you know, it, it, it pales in significance with, with last year <laughs> and the, the end, the dog days of, of Liz Truss's is short premiership. But it was kind of emblematic of the fact that, that Sunak didn't really have necessarily control of his party or control of the messaging of what Sunakism was. Alongside scrapping HS2, we also heard in the conference speech she wanted to ban smoking and maths to 18. And that was kind of the sum total, in a sense, of what Sunakism was in this big kind of pitch to the, to the public. What did you kind of make of, of conference overall? There's a great line from 
Churchill once, take this pudding away, it has no theme. And I think a themeless pudding is really what Sunakism amounted to at that conference. You were offered a speech in which, as you say, there were three sort of headline policies, cancelling an infrastructure project, banning smoking for a generation, and offering teaching for maths and a whole overhaul of the T-levels system. I wasn't sure what was the kind of one-word theme or summary. Was it security? Was it freedom? Mm. And well, he wanted around, it to be changed because he well, mentioned changed. that a lot of time, didn't well, he? he? He said he was going to bring back the end, the end of a 30-year consent, polit- failed political consensus, and he brings back the man leather conservatives for 11 of them. <laughs> so it was all... Those, this is what I mean I said earlier about not much cutting through to the polls. I think number 10 have tried. They tried that net zero speech. They tried the conference speech, pulling different levers, and you're not getting the response from the machine or the, the reaction from the public that you'd expect, I think it all lets people being a bit confused about what on earth is the narrative of the next election. Yeah. I mean, the Tories are happy to criticise uh, Labour for not having much of a narrative, but frankly, I'm not sure what the Conservatives offer too. Either it's about, is he the change candidate or isn't he? And yeah, yeah. I'm not sure they know themselves yet. No, it's tricky to run a change message when you've been in power for 13 years. Johnson managed to do it with the kind of the Brexit stuff in 2019 but it, it, it's a trick that you not, can't necessarily pull twice in a row when you've then been in charge for another, another and, four years and, and three prime ministers later especially when there's no money like yeah. in 2019 it was feast after famine yeah, yeah. and now post pandemic when we spent an awful lot of money yeah and not all of it went to michelle moan <laughs> zoe another another political moment staying at, at, at the conference theme though we had andrew boff uh, one of the conservative members of the london assembly was escorted out of swallow bravman's speech and then a few days later keir starmer's big keynote speech the Labour Party conference was interrupted by him being covered in glitter explain who threw the glitter over him and why and also what the kind of reaction was because I think it was almost seen as like you know that it worked out quite well for Keir Starmer yeah it did and I'm now even having to cast back who threw the glitter yeah no one no one remembers that guy he got (laughs) got dragged out it was it was one of the was it one of the rebellion something rebellion was was it 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 wasn't an extinction rebellion it was one of the other like climate protest groups but I cannot remember people's from yeah I mean given that we've got four political journalists and we can't remember and that's the thing to be honest the protest itself didn't really carry much weight because no one really knew who they were. Yeah. And to be honest, in contrast to some of the interruptions at Conservative Party conference, you mentioned Andrew Boff, it seemed quite heavy handed the way that that was responded to, given he seemed to only mutter under his breath. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. Suddenly he had all these security guards on him, escorting him out by his arms, like quite dramatic. Yeah, who um, knew that the Home Office policy on protest would be used yeah, at their own, their own party absolutely. conference necessarily? But then when you got to the Labour one, the glitter, given how much of a shock that must have been for a party leader stood at the front mm. to have someone quite physically put his arm around him, throw something over him, he wouldn't have even known what it was at first. No, no, no. He, I thought, dealt with it remarkably well. He, yeah. he seemed to say quite stoic. He carried on with his speech without any hesitation. And I think while everyone kind of watching was quite shocked in that moment, to be honest, I think it actually did Starmer a yeah. favour. Like he seemed to come out of it quite well. Caitlin, he, he managed, he, he took the sh- he took his jacket mm. off, you know, the kind of that, that image then of him, that sleeves rolled up, jacket off. Actually it worked, worked out pretty well for him. It left him with a series of stills that I'm sure he'll be quite happy about. Like like you said, the taking off the jacket and the rolling up the sleeves and then putting his hands back on the lectern. And being a builder, not a blocker. Yeah. Yeah. A Perfect blocker. example, rolling yes. up the sleeves. Although he did say at the his sort of Christmas drinks, he said that it wasn't just glitter, it was sort of glue as well and his hands were still sort of covered in and that his main issue was when his wife came up afterwards you didn't want to like put <laughs> gluey glittery drape hands. a pore around yeah her, exactly sort of sort of trying to hug her without touching <laughs> anything but yeah it was it was a really interesting moment and i think for starmer I, you know again it's that as, as caitlin pointed out because of the quirk of the calendar 
instead of it being before it was Labour conference was after the Tories and it was very much like well you've seen what those guys in power are doing or not doing and now this is kind of us it worked quite well for them didn't wasn't it? there a line that you then came out with afterwards this is why we need to be the party of power not the party of protest or, right or yeah something about, yeah exactly something about the, yeah. the idea of politicians who, gone. who can respond well to heckles or incidents it looks spontaneous looks natural looks confident and i think the electorate respond really well to that at the point mm. where some idiots try to disrupt you i think if you handle that deftly you know there's famous example of people putting down hecklers wilson was brilliant at it mm. 1670s you know i think starmer came off really well from that yeah but since you actually any none of these moments i didn't include any moments from sort of like prime minister's questions apart from those unintentional ones i think because I, maybe sunak and starmer have not been as good with that there's a lot of criticism they each criticize each other for not listening to the question and reading out their responses there's not been a great deal of that kind of repartee and we've probably not had that kind of the, that PMQs those good performers there for quite a long time well, well the, the great thing about Boris and Keir was they hated each other <laughs> yeah, and there was yeah. a real loathing there <laughs> yeah, 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 with was. this it's just kind of oh he's a he's a good guy I'm trying to do a job you know it's uh, mm. you know, either you either want like proper bitterness or you want a bit of dad humour which I think David Cameron mastered really him versus Ed Miliband because they both done it for, for so many years yeah. they were really good at the repartee and I think also just sadly I mean PMQs is just far less of the kind of box office than it once was because everything so saturated online now. Yeah. It doesn't feel like the blockbuster moment of the week that it was, even up was until it ever, last though? year. Was it ever? Uh, there were points last year where you, yeah, where good. the lobby felt like you know you have to watch PMQs because there was drama after drama after after drama. There were times last year where you felt like you had to be refreshing your Twitter page every thirty seconds to be able to kept in the loop with what's happening, who's going where, who said what, what, mm. who's reporting what. This year, things seem to have taken more of a step back into that slow burn. I don't think they're any less political, but mm. there's less of the explosive firework yeah. drama. It's more of a saucepan bubbling over than mm. a firework exploding. Well, talking about Boris Johnson and hating Rishi Sunak, uh, Nadine Doris has finally entered the chat. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, we could have done a whole podcast just about Nadine Doris's top 10 moments of, of the year. James, talk us through Nadine Doris's year as briefly as possible, if you can. So uh, she began the year as a backbench critic of Rishi Sunak. She's ended the year even more of a critic of him, but outside of Parliament now. And the real moment, I think, came during the summer where she... It was the whole row over Boris Johnson's peerages list. Yes. And he was expected she would be one of those MPs who'd be given one of them. Now, the whole controversy briefly centred on whether you could defer a peerage effectively until after the election. Yeah. So you could go from being a continuous member of parliament to then taking it after. That would be to avoid a by-election contest. And under the rules, that wasn't the case. And so she then said, I'm going to resign. And she attacked uh, Rishi Sunak and one of his colleagues, James Forsyth, former colleague of mine, who, as forces of darkness, which, I mean, darkness, forces of darkness aren't what they used to be. I'll just say that. Um, one of the nicest men in politics. And um, and then after that, she then re refused to resign. So yes. there was a, she dragged out this resignation for months until the point where she quit and then triggered the mid-Bedfordshire by-election, which uh, Labour then took narrowly. In that time, she's railed against... Uh, Rishi Sunak, she's railed against Michael Gove, Kemi Badnock, she's written a book, The Plot, yes. and of course she's been on talk TV as well, so um, across many different formats, across many different forms, one thing remained constant, <laughs> Dean Doris is critical of people. Yes, so in the, the book itself, The Plot, is I think uh, Patrick Maguire re re reviewed it for the time, said it was the maddest book that he'd ever, he'd ever read. And the, <laughs> Losing the plot. And the, yeah, and essentially that if you come to any other conclusion, then he, he worries about your sanity as well. Just explain to what the kind of the idea behind it was and, and the kind of the James Bond 
references and all this kind of stuff. What's the kind of the, the theme behind it, essentially? It's called, you know, the, the plot to bring down Boris Johnson. People have kind of described it as a fiction book in the way that she's narrated it. Yes. Um, but she's obviously coming at it from the point of view that this is the truth and that this is what has happened. I mean, when we look at the COVID inquiry, for example, like everything that comes out of the COVID inquiry, she can bring back to the plot. Everything yeah, yeah, yeah. is around essentially bring the bringing down of Boris Johnson in her mind, the best prime minister there ever was. Mm -hmm. And that essentially everyone was in cahoots with this, whether it was Rishi Sunak, Michael Gove, Dominic Cummings, who's now obviously former advisor has now come out being very critical of Boris Johnson himself. And you only need to scroll through Nadine Dorries feed to just see the amount of time she refers back to this book, the plot and that everything was centered on this theme and that she and Boris Johnson have been a victim to essentially a conspiracy theory. Yeah. Um, but if you're a conspiracist, then therefore yeah. everything feeds into the conspiracy theory, doesn't it? You know? we, yeah, yeah. we were delighted the spectator to discover we've been running the Conservative Party for 30 years. Yeah. Uh, that was a very exciting moment in our professional lives and we look forward to seeing what we do next year. Yeah, who are you gonna, who, you, who's the, who are you gonna make next Prime Minister then? Oh, I mean, I couldn't possibly tell that. That's a secret known only to me, Dougie Smith, Paul Goodman, Paul Staines, yeah, yeah, and the yeah. rest of the movement. And whoever Dr. No essentially is. Because Caitlin, there was essentially, apart from this kind of narrative that she weaved, there was also pages and pages of transcripts of interviews that she'd done with people various members or former members of the Conservative Party and that she couldn't use their real names so it was all these code names of, of James Bond villains which kind of added to it I think. Well if I remember correctly publication had been delayed hadn't it? Yes. It, it was supposed to be over the summer and then it finally appeared sort of late October early November. It was meant to be at Tory conference. Yeah it was meant to be at Tory conference. It just feels a little bit like I'm not sure how many people are listening. <laughs> Put it put it that way. You know, it's clearly there's a lot of work that's gone into this book. And Nadine Dorries has had, you know, a long career in politics. But clearly towards the end, that career in politics was very closely tied to Boris Johnson. Yeah. Boris Johnson, who is now not only no longer prime minister, but is no longer a member of parliament. I think that is also another moment of the year that should get an honourable mention in this podcast. Mm. Um, the Friday night in June where Boris Johnson announced at about 9pm. Yeah, he that was, was a bit of a marmalade job, wasn't the, it? Yeah, that he was standing It's down. always it's a Friday always night. Friday. Yeah. Also, uh, if I remember correctly, it was on the same day as the Northern Research Group conference, which was the second year in a row that the yes. NRG had had their conference overshadowed by, um, <laughs> by Boris, Johnson. By by Boris, Boris Johnson. Johnson. Yeah, I mean, two points. First of all, I think that before we talk about Richard next sort of position, etc., it's so interesting how his two predecessors have just left the stage. Yeah. And there aren't that many people who'd want to bring back Boris are now or not many want to bring back Liz mm. um, and so I think that maybe they could be flaring up in later down the line but for now as they agree in the short to medium term I can't see kind of there the people around them who are so important just a year or two ago uh, really playing much role and I think the second point is that the next parliament is going to look dramatically different from this yeah, yeah. the closest is the 2010 to 15 parliament when a whole new generation came in and the fascinating stat I think is that if Labour gets a majority of around 20 seats they're going to get a lot more, I think, but 20 seats or so. Because if you take away the people who were standing down, who didn't quit during the Corbyn years because they all wanted to stop the seats from going to a Corbynite, you are going to have more new MPs for Labour than existing ones. Yeah. So we're going to see a huge new intake of 150, 200 people who've never been in Parliament before, most of the Labour Party. And a lot of the people we've known for the past 10, 10 years, as journalists, as commentators, people, voters, etc., are going to completely change. And that's going to be very interesting for the politics of the 2020s and 2030s. Yeah, a complete kind of a, a reshift around of it. But one of the old things that comes back, and this is the, the last moment, is um, Rishi Sunak and the Parthenon marbles. So that kind of old, uh, kind of canard, you know, marble gates, James is punching the air there. So I'll let you lead on this one. How, how did we end up with the Elgin marbles, Parthenon sculptures? How did that end up? 
back in the news again and how do we end up assessing another piece of royal clothing uh, and reading a political uh, moment kind of out of it? Talk about politics like 1823. Basically, this was about the Greek Prime Minister's visit and it all began really with that classic staple of the journal, political journalist, the Sunday morning round. Yep. He gave an interview to Laura Kunzberg in which he talked about the Elgin Marbles and he'd made that a staple of his election campaign earlier this year, bringing yeah. them back to Greece. As a result of this, Number 10 took this very badly and then rather than having the meeting with Rishina that was promised, instead offered him one with Oliver Dowden, which now seems to be the sort of runner-up prize in British politics. I mean, yeah, that's, uh, what more of a snub could you possibly have than being <laughs> offered a meeting with Oliver Dowden? And as a result of this, the Greek Prime Minister was, was furious and, and cancelled the meeting and that was then this whole row blew up into the, the news <laughs> offering I have to say some of the worst jokes I've heard of that week's Prime Minister's questions <laughs> uh, you know about ancient ruins and marbles oh and no it doesn't it's can't be worse than um, from up yours to laws to take our money Kagame which was one of uh, Starmer's <laughs> one over Rwanda I mean he's just really getting into the tabloid fodder isn't he but I, look, I think you think it's also a reminder that you know, this is, will be something I think we'll see next year is about the culture wars element. I think yeah. it's something that the Tories want to exploit. But second of all, you know, Rishinak is pretty small-c conservative himself. Yes. Um, he is someone who, who really feels this passionately, who I think, as people around him, certainly think that if they gave the Elgin Marbles back to Greece, other things would follow, and you know, be sort of restitution missions, and the whole British Museum sector would be at stake here. So I think it was a kind of interesting shot perhaps fired from a number 10 which is often criticised for being far too peacenik rather than yeah. sticking its labourers others might like them to yeah but I can't imagine they were sat in number 10 and they've got the grid on the wall with what they do and this is marble week I don't imagine they had a, the idea of being marble week and of course they all kind of got to the point where King Charles then wore a tie which had a Greek flag on it and this is now we're now reading into it this is a subtle yeah. signal from the king that he's on the Greek side he's, not you know, so subtle well not so subtle no like a <laughs> Um, his famously his mother wore that hat that looked like an Eve flag yep. to deliver the, the Queen's speech Baroness Hale had the spider yeah, yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah and not only did he wear the tie on just any unassuming day as king he wore it to COP28 yes. so where he was going to be in front of an international audience which we know he has um, a disagreement with Sunak over a lot of those yeah, issues yeah. as well so you can't do anything but see that and assume it was some kind of message that can't be a coincidence I think <laughs> Buckingham Palace said it was just part of his tie collection um, <laughs> yeah but Mate, does he have a one for every country? I don't know. Um, but he is half Greek, so obviously. His yeah. father is Greek. Um, so who knows? Maybe he does just have... Um, lots of kind of Greek flag merch. In but the his idea drawers, that he but... just the idea that he just reaches in and pulls out any old tie. Yeah, Surely there's, there's there's a gentleman of the tie, the gentleman of the neckwear that who who, would... who gets out his ties each morning. And surely that was that was a, a a deliberate act as much as it could have been. Who knows? I mean, obviously there's been speculation with having a new monarch for the first time in many many decades as to how he's going to approach the role. Is he going to be more political, less mm. political? To be honest, overall this whole Elgin Marbles argument as James touched on it was just so bizarre because the polling showed that 53% of the public support the Elgin Marbles yeah. being sent back to Greece yeah so if Sunak and number 10 thought that there was kind of a big win electorate wise there it's kind of difficult to see what that is <laughs> I don't think um, it's going to be on the doorstep you know no. the, kind of the marble stuff if we're starting a culture war yeah. the, the trick is to be on the side of the majority right if you're facing yeah. the, if you're facing the wrong way on this stuff then you know things are going badly right and something to point out as well that this meeting was meant to be with the Greek Prime Minister to discuss the very important issues of migration that obviously polls very very highly with the public in terms of where they prioritize it some people have said it was maybe a kind of dead cat strategy of distracting from other issues or it's never trying a dead to appeal cat. to red wall voters but do red wall voters care 
I don't think they do. No, but just actually before we just wrap up then, just the thing that actually I thought about that was that it showed a kind of a bit of a tetchy side to him. And we saw some of that tetchiness in the way that he responded to some press conferences recently. I think he told your colleague, Katie Balls, that he wasn't tetchy. That he's enthusiastic. He's enthusiastic. But I do think that was, you know, we're talking about the campaign next year where actually you can sort of get at him and that he will respond to these kind of things and and respond kind of quite negatively, I suppose. If you are a politician, you are only going to be asked more questions in 2024 than you were asked in 2023 Mm. I think is probably the way to sum that up so perhaps if there are questions that you don't want to answer or don't like answering I would say think of different answers for them but just get used to it yeah or hide in the fridge and hide in the fridge you know back to the 2019 vintage (laughs) that worked Um, pretty well for Boris Johnson (laughs) but there is a serious point here in as much as for the vast majority of the time, the public aren't that interested in politics. You know, they'll, they'll see the ministers come on, you know, Sky News or GMB in the morning, but they're not paying attention day in, day out to all the little intricacies of an argument. To some extent, that changes during a general election, mm. not only because the political content starts to oversaturate things even more than it does for now. And therefore, you know, the public's going to be seeing more of Rishi Sunak. The public's going to be seeing more of Keir Starmer. The public's going to be seeing more of Ed Davey, leader of the Liberal Democrats. And <laughs> God forbid. <laughs> so Lucky public. Yeah. So, you know, there are still votes to be won and lost in this general election. Yeah. And if that is how Rishi Sunak or any other politician may continue to answer questions, mm. I can't imagine it being that endearing. Yeah. Right. Well, before I, I'm going to ask you all to give you your, your number one maddest political moment of the year. Mm. But there's a couple of honourable mentions. Uh, DUP's Jim Shannon compared grey squirrels to Hamas uh, in the chamber at one point. Darren Rodwell, the Labour candidate in, in East London, he, he attached a campaign poster to some headstones in a graveyard. Matt Hancock, I mean, getting destroyed by the SAS, I think, is, was a great moment. And um, Rishi Shunak interviewing Elon Musk was one of the most bizarre moments. And and Sue Gray returning to the political fall. We talked about kind of the t- politics being a bit of a soap opera. These returning characters, Sue Gray, Lord Cameron. I think it shows you're you're getting to the crescendo of the of, of the of the program if you're bringing back these characters. But what for you guys has been kind of the the moment that's going to stick with you from 2023? I'll start with you, Caitlin. I think for me, it's got to be the HS2 drama. It's yeah. been a while since you've had reporters, photographers, camera crews, all sort of like wandering around trying to find this one random outdoor spot for a spontaneous press conference. Yeah, chasing and mares it did feel, around uh, Yeah, it conference. did feel like a bit of a um, return to the heady days of 2018-19. Yeah, James? I think for me, it was sort of Boris's last stand, the Privileges Committee, yeah. and uh, facing them all off one last time. And thinking where we were a year ago mm-hmm. when it was that infamous day when, of course, uh, the day before, he, before he resigned as Prime Minister. So um, I think the exit, for now at least, of Boris Johnson <laughs> from Parliament is what I'll take from this year. Yeah. Zoe? Personal mini highlight for me was a couple of weeks ago attending the switch on of the Christmas tree lights outside Parliament. And there was a big countdown, choir singers, beautiful, beautiful kind of service. Three, two, one, go. Only half the lights switched on, met with raucous, awkward laughter from everyone attending. And I heard a man behind me, possibly an MP, I do not know, say, well, isn't that just an epitome of this parliament? <laughs> uh, so a symbolic moment. And yeah, I think that was a, a personal, personal Yeah, highlight. I think that's a, a good a place to leave it as any then about the kind of the, the politics in 2023. So thanks you all. That was really good. That's all we've got time for this week. But you can read all the latest on the big stories from Westminster at politicshome.com and keep her up to date by subscribing to our seven day week newsletters by clicking on the link on our homepage. Thanks again to James Heal, my top colleagues, Caitlin Doherty and Zoe Crowther. Thanks all for listening. Please subscribe wherever you podcast and leave us a review. 
If you want to get in touch, then reach out to us on Twitter at Politics Home or email us via news at politicshome.com. We'll be back next week for a special episode previewing the upcoming year in politics with some more great guests. But for now, I've been Alan Tolhurst and this has been The Rundown. <laughs>